Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of HSF's Investigate 360 podcast, where our global team explore key issues and themes arising in internal and external investigations. I'm Madeline Ryan, a disputes lawyer in our Brisbane office, a member of our Corporate Crime and Investigations, or CCNI team. I'm joined by Jackie Wooten, Brisbane Disputes Partner and co-head of HSF's Australian CCNI practice, and Chris Hicks, Special Counsel in our Perth office and CCNI specialist. So we discuss whistleblowing as a trigger in investigations and dealing with whistleblowing aspects of internal investigations. Hi, Maddie. Hi, Chris. Great to be speaking. Hello. Hi, guys. Before we get into it, I just wanted to situate our discussion in the context of some work we've done in the CCNI space this year. Uh, this year, we conducted a survey of recent internal investigations that have been supported by our Australian CCNI team shed some light on key trends, issues and learnings that could be useful for our clients and businesses more broadly. We had observed that since reforms to the whistleblower protection provisions in the Australian Corporations Act in 2019, an increasing number of internal investigations were being triggered by whistleblower disclosures. Our survey confirmed that whistleblower disclosures were in fact the most common trigger for investigations dealt with by our team. But at that fact, the fact that our clients were coming to us with these investigations wasn't really that surprising. Over the past couple of years, we've seen increased regulatory focus on whistleblowing and the requirements of whistleblower protection laws means these disclosures need to be handled carefully to ensure compliance. Some of the most important legal requirements from an Australian perspective to keep in mind when dealing with whistleblower disclosures, maintaining the confidentiality of whistleblowers' identities, and protecting whistleblowers from detriment or reprisal. In this episode, we will be exploring common pitfalls uh, when investigating whistleblower disclosure that can see companies fall foul of these requirements and some practical tips for supporting compliance. Our discussion will likely have an Australian flavour given our practices, but hopefully we'll have some helpful tips for any global listeners out there as well, if you have similar laws in your jurisdictions. First, why should we be thinking about this? Why are we talking about it? Chris, now what's been happening lately in Australia that indicates regulators are turning up the heat on enforcing these whistleblower protection provisions? Yeah, Maddie, it's been a particularly busy year in the world of whistleblowers in Australia. I think public sector whistleblowers have got a lot of the attention this year uh, with some, some very high profile cases in the courts and obviously in the media. But there have also been significant developments in relation to private sector whistleblowers. Um, and I think, as you as you suggest, these developments indicate that perhaps the time for complacency has passed. By its own account, prior to 2023, ASIC, I think, had taken a fairly light touch to enforcement of its revamped whistleblower laws that came into effect back in 2019. Um, it had used its information gathering powers to conduct a number of reviews into compliance and those I think had really focused on educating the market about what was expected and many will recall that in October 2021 ASIC took the step of publishing uh, an open letter to CEOs urging them to improve their whistleblowers whistleblower policies um, but I guess earlier this year in, in March this year ASIC took the gloves off um, and brought its first civil proceedings for breach of the whistleblower protections. And those those proceedings are against Terracom Limited and a number of its directors. Um, 
in those proceedings, ASIC is alleging that Terracom breached the anti-victimisation provisions in Part 9.4 AAA of the Corporations Act. Um, and it says that they did this by making a number of allegedly misleading ASX announcements that identified a whistleblower by name and described his whistleblower allegations as false. Now, in those proceedings, ASIC is going to allege that Terracom caused detriment to the whistleblower, including damaging his reputation, his earning capacity and his psychological state. Uh, among other things that ASIC seeks in those proceedings is disqualification orders against the directors of Terracom that ASIC will say were involved in Terracom's contraventions of the whistleblower protections. Uh, the case is due back in court for directions in uh, February of next year. And I expect it'll probably go to trial next year as well. So it'll be a really interesting one to watch. Now, obviously, the Terracom proceedings relate to alleged civil contraventions. But of course, breaching the whistleblower protections in the Corporations Act can also be a criminal offence with some really serious criminal penalties up to and including imprisonment. Um, at the same time, then, as these proceedings were commenced, I think almost on the same day, um, ASIC issued its report on good practice for the handling of whistleblower disclosures, which was based on a targeted review that it did into whistleblowing policies and arrangements by seven sample firms. Um, in ASIC's view, it's clear that a whistleblower policy is a foundation of how companies should handle whistleblower disclosures. Um, it, it's safe to say that ASIC considers a whistleblower policy to be a necessary but not sufficient condition when it comes to best practice. Uh, best practice, according to ASIC, certainly based on based on their review, requires companies to embed a whistleblower culture in their organisation, uh, provide resources and training to the people involved in the handling of whistleblower protections, monitor and review their programs rather than simply setting and forgetting, using information from whistleblower disclosures to improve their operations, and, and again, not just putting whistleblower reports into the bottom drawer, making sure that there are senior executives who are accountable for the program, that it can't just be an HR issue, um, and ensuring that the board has oversight of the program. And this, this includes ensuring they're appropriately updated on whistleblower reports and, and the outcomes of investigations. And I think this report will likely guide ASIC's enforcement strategy into the new year, particularly as it ramps up enforcement against companies that it considers are failing to comply with the requirements to have uh, whistleblower policies. Um, and we expect that ASIC will probably play particularly close attention to those companies that it considers are simply paying lip service to, to the whistleblower laws. So as I said, a, a lot going on in 2023 in, in the world of whistleblowers and, and I think a market shift from the previous years um, where ASIC has taken that, that lighter touch to enforcement and compliance. And I mean, Matt, if I could just jump in there as well. I mean, Chris, that's an awful lot to be happening just in Australia, but for our global listeners, you know, I'm, I'm sure that some of the themes that Australian authorities and Australian companies are navigating are going to be resonating for, for you as well. So, you know, ASIC's good practice guidance, it certainly, I think, really is a, a useful tool from an international good practice perspective around how entities in Australia and elsewhere can be thinking about handling whistleblower reports. I think the Terracom case and the breadth of detriment and victimisation 
that our corporate regulator is wanting to call out. Again, I think that's something to note, which really does have really important implications for uh, the treatment of whistleblowers across lots of jurisdictions. You know, we, we I think everyone will be aware the core protection across all global laws around protecting whistleblowers is all about non-retaliation. In Australia, we we have a, a bit of a higher watermark approach. We have you know, protections around non-retaliation plus the additional uh, requirements around protecting the identity of a whistleblower. But it's really interesting, I think, that ASIC has leaned really heavily into its first prosecution around the protection against non-retaliation and the breadth of uh, conduct that can be said to be a form of retaliation or victimisation. So again, I think that that's something to watch from a global perspective as well. And of course, you know, that this just that level of attention that we see in Australia, we are seeing that play out in lots of jurisdictions in the EU. You know, many member states are in the process of implementing the EU directive. Uh, you know, we see a number of other jurisdictions adopting some really targeted legislation uh, looking at embedding whistleblower protections for particular types of reports. Uh, the, the sexual harassment area is one where there, there's lots of bespoke regulation happening across lots of jurisdictions. Uh, and of course, um, you know, we continue to see a lot of interest in, in the issue around incentives for whistleblowers, um, you know, and obviously the US is leading the way in terms of its program that, that it has. And um, again, I think the statistics that the SEC is publishing is showing that that, is, that continues to be um, a, a really actively uh, utilised mechanism. So, you know, the, lots happening across the globe as well, in addition to, Chris, everything that you've mentioned from an Australian perspective. Thank you both. Well, that all reinforces that it's increasingly important for us to keep these whistleblower protection requirements front of mind and to be prepared to receive whistleblower disclosures and to deal with them. Uh, but of course, we all know mistakes can happen. Uh, another finding from the survey we conducted earlier this year was that 70% of internal investigation clients, of our internal investigation clients, they're often developing their investigation responses on the go, which makes it so much easier for them to miss things. So on that note, uh, let's turn to the pitfalls we've seen in practice. Um, Jackie, Chris, what, what traps have you seen people fall into when investigating whistleblower reports? Yeah, I'll, I'll go first. I mean, I think one that comes up almost invariably um, is recipients of whistleblower reports not appreciating the strict nature of the confidentiality requirements that apply under Australian law, and, and Jackie alluded to them earlier. Um, in, in broad terms, the law prohibits disclosing a whistleblower's identity or any information that might identify a whistleblower unless one of the specific exceptions applies. Um, the main exception is where a whistleblower consents to the disclosure of their identity. There's also limited exceptions for disclosing identifying information where it's necessary to do so to investigate uh, the whistleblower's allegations. And uh, it's, it's also permitted to disclose the whistleblower's identity uh, to a legal practitioner to take advice about whistleblower protections. But putting aside those specific exceptions, the confidentiality protections are absolute and immediate. And so what, what we often see is well-intentioned recipients of whistleblower reports passing the report onto their manager 
or to a colleague or or even to an assistant to deal with. Um, I think it's entirely understandable that a person who receives a whistleblower report, particularly where that person perhaps isn't a compliance professional or someone who you know is is in the ordinary business of receiving reports like this, um, it, it's entirely understandable that they'll they'll have a degree of alarm um, and and they might want to unburden on on someone else within the organisation when they receive a report like this, but that really needs to be done carefully and in a way that doesn't breach the confidentiality protections. There is um, unfortunately no exceptions for recipients who uh, run around in a panic and disclose someone's uh, identifying information. So I think that's that's the pitfall that I see most most often when I'm um, helping clients with, with whistleblower reports. Yeah, and I, I think that, you know, that really resonates with me too, Chris, because I, I think we we tend to see a couple of biases in in how uh, our clients want to respond to reports and how they they'll to handle things. Uh, we often see a real bias to action. So, I mean, Chris, as you alluded to, there can be a desire to unburden and share because of a, a, a level of alarm. Equally, it can often be a really well-intentioned um, reaction to say, right, we've got something, we need to act. And rather than pausing and identifying the the whistleblower implications and uh, pitfalls that need to be just methodically worked through, there can be a bias to want to start an investigation and share information in order to facilitate that. Uh, We see that same, uh, another sort of bias playing out during investigations where there's often a desire, very well intentioned, to keep relevant stakeholders informed to be reporting up, to be updating and, sh- and and sharing information in a transparent way. Again, that's an area where um, if whistleblower considerations aren't taken into account, uh, entities can get into some difficulty there. So I think, yeah, I, you know, I think not appreciating that matters are whistleblower matters and that these laws need to be appropriately addressed in the response is, is really at the heart of, uh, of some of the challenges we find clients face. And I think that that um, brings to mind another pitfall that I've seen come up before, and that's around this this notion that um, a, a whistleblower has not claimed the protections, and I'm using air quotes, but no one can see them, but ha- hasn't claimed the whistleblower protections. Um, what matters is not whether or not the person raising a concern considers themselves to be a whistleblower or has somehow invoked the protections under the Corporations Act or, or the Tax Administration Act. The question is whether or not the person who received the disclosure is an eligible recipient, whether the person who made the disclosure is an eligible whistleblower and whether the matter is one that qualifies for protection. And so most notably, um, whether or not the, the whistleblower had reasonable grounds for suspecting that that the matter that they're disclosing concerned um, misconduct, uh, and, and so we we often uh, you know, encounter clients who are saying to us, "Oh, we, we're we're not sure that they're claim that this is a whistleblower protection. We're not sure that they're claiming this one as a whistleblower protection." And and our advice, you know, is is often to err on the side of caution. That's always, I think, the the safest advice. Um, you, you're you're better off 
treating someone as being a whistleblower who is entitled to the protections under the Corporations Act uh, and and proceeding accordingly. Um, it, it's much easier to, uh, I think, walk back from that position than to find yourself in a situation where you've you've proceeded on the contrary assumption and and all of a sudden you find yourself in hot water because you've contravened the whistleblower protections. So yeah, um, a, a pitfall is, is this um, failing to appreciate that the whistleblower protections apply automatically without the need for for a person to invoke them. We've put the fear into our listeners and identified a few things that people can easily get wrong. But uh, let's help them out and identify some things they can do right. So Jackie, uh, what are some things our clients, our businesses can do preemptively in this space? Yeah, it's a great question, Maddie. I, I guess if I think back to that finding that you mentioned from our survey, where we did see uh, a really strong contingent of, of clients dealing really on the go with a with a, a significant report, uh, I sort of flip that and I think, well, actually, one of the really uh, positive preemptive steps that I think organisations can consider taking now is to learn from that experience and actually do some scenario planning. So, uh, you know, almost wargaming, right? If I'm an organisation that has only received a few or a handful of whistleblower reports Let's just sort of think about if we were to receive one tomorrow, how how would we be responding? Um, you know, what 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 would be our biases? What would we be likely to do? Do we have a clear plan of how we'd respond? And if we don't, well, what are we going to do to fix those fix those gaps? Um, and equally, uh, I know many of our listeners will be from organisations that are really well versed in this area that may have strong centralised systems for dealing with whistleblower complaints. Again, I think there's a lot of value in reflecting on how well those systems are working, how effective they are, where have issues emerged, where are their control weaknesses, and really setting a bit of a plan for 2024 around how to feel and address those weaknesses. So um, I, I think for me, that would be my, my top tip for people is actually just spend this time. It's a good time of year. We're sort of coming up to that, that break. Uh, let's use this period as a, a bit of a chance for reflection and learning around what's working well and how can things be improved. I guess something people can do once they receive a report is to involve a lawyer at the earliest opportunity. And I'm not just saying that from a, a self-interested perspective. It is actually permitted to disclose a whistleblower's identity to a lawyer to take advice about the whistleblower protections. That's an exemption uh, to the confidentiality requirements. And a lawyer with knowledge of the whistleblower protections can therefore help you to manage the process uh, without risking uh, tripping up over the whistleblower protections. So you can speak freely and hopefully take some good advice. It's uh, a good Chris, uh, reminder, you... a bit of a safe harbour. See yes. a safe harbour to be able to have that conversation and get some advice. Absolutely. Yeah. Um. Uh, I, I think that's a great way of describing it as a safe harbour. Um, and, you know, I somewhat flippantly referred to the um, lack of an exception for anyone in a panic. But uh, to some extent, th there is an exception. If if you are feeling out of your depth or you, you do need advice, you, you do have that safe harbour of, of coming to a lawyer. And, and um, one thing that we suggest to clients that they they tell their, their people is if you receive a report just send it on to a, a lawyer um, for for advice and and then at least you've 
you've uh, got someone else dealing with it. it it's a problem shared is a problem halved so um, I think that's great advice uh, a, a couple of other things that I just think are good practical tips uh, I think organizations do well to have some sort of centralized system for dealing with whistleblower disclosures one one thing that we've seen in in particularly in larger organizations is um, they have multiple points at which whistleblower disclosures might be received either for, for example through a formal whistleblower hotline or whistleblower um, system and then they have uh, an HR system that sits alongside it and if those two two channels aren't communicating with each other uh, there's a real opportunity for um, things to slip through the gaps but also I think for uh, systemic problems within the organization to not rise to the surface because you have might have one business unit that is dealing with uh, dealing with an issue in their particular silo and you have another um, another unit that's dealing with an issue in their silo and because they're not speaking and because there's not a kind of central triaging of of whistleblower concerns um, those systemic issues aren't aren't spotted soon enough um, the other thing that I think is really important is just continuing to provide training uh, within the organisation. And understandably, again, a lot of organisations um, provide training uh, and resources to their staff about how they can raise concerns. And that's that's extremely important. And that's part of promoting the culture of speaking up. But it's, I think, equally important to make sure that training is being provided to those who are in a position to receive whistleblower reports bearing in mind that the way that Australian law operates is that an eligible recipient includes any officer or senior manager of a company um, and so that that you know in bigger organizations can be a large number of people uh, who who might find themselves in a position of receiving a whistleblower disclosure and needing to understand what do I do in these circumstances? Who do I speak to? What can I say? Um, what protections do I need to put in place for the whistleblower? So really important um, to, to be providing resources and training both to people who might raise concerns, but also to people who might receive them. Um, I think that's part of the, the, the bigger picture when it comes to training in relation to whistleblower protection. I think that almost brings us to the end of our, our time here today. We've discussed so many tips, uh, but I think a key takeaway is that when it comes to internal investigations triggered, triggered by whistleblower reports, it is so important to be prepared. As Chris said, developing policies and procedures and training uh, that can all help to reduce the risk of non-compliance and investigation missteps and to help identify issues earlier and make the whole investigation process more streamlined and hopefully more, uh, less stressful. Thank you, Jackie and Chris. Thank you very much. And, Thanks, and thank Maddie. you to you, our listener, for joining us today. You can find more information about our survey that we've been discussing and our investigations practice on our website. And we would love to hear from you directly if you have any questions about whistleblowing or investigations in your organisation. We hope you will join us soon for the next instalment of HSF's Investigate 360 podcast.